Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is Philippians 4, verses 4 through 7. It can be found on page 1787 in the Pew Bibles. Um, and while you're turning there, there will be an Ask Me Anything portion at the end of the service. So pay attention to the slides because the number um, will pop up periodically if you have any questions for Devin. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. <coughs> Thanks, Adasa. Morning. It's great to see all of you today. Before I get started, I just want to say to any of you who are engaged, nearly engaged, newly married, uh, we're going to be running a class at Pastor Mike Beresford's house, two Saturdays in February that is designed for you. And if I can just pause and riff on Romans for a second. One of the things that, uh, that Paul says in Romans is that zeal without knowledge can get you into trouble. And if there is ever a relationship in your life where you might be tempted to rely on the zeal that you feel and disregard the necessary knowledge that will help you channel that zeal into something productive, it's going to be those early days of your uh, romantic relationships that lead to marriage. So I would urge you, block off the 11th and the 25th of February on your calendars right now from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. Go up and sit with Pastor Mike and his wife Estel. Decades of not just their own married experience, but decades of counseling couples who are at the stage in their relationships that you are now. So if you want to know more, you can go to highpointchurch.org backslash classes. Learn a little bit more, but I really do urge you to sign up. Great experience and one of the most valuable things you can do to lay the tracks for a healthy marriage that'll last you as many decades as uh, it's lasted for Mike and Estel. Uh, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we're two or more gathered. You're there in the midst of them. Uh, that we don't have to wonder about your presence because it's what you've promised and what you promise you fulfill. Today, Lord God, let us be those people who rejoice in your nearness. Lord, let our words, our thoughts, our deeds be acceptable and pleasing to you. Help us today to praise and worship you as you deserve to be praised. Uh, and help all of us to say that we no longer live, but that Christ lives in all of us. And Lord, begin with me. Lord, my teaching, my preaching is not sufficient to the need today. So Lord, come and preach in me. Lord, sow the seed into the hearts of the people that you need sown. Pastor your people on good things today. And this is what I ask in your own name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, all of us have values that shape the way that we live in the world. Sometimes they're obvious, sometimes they're not. But just about any time we do something, whether we could name it, whether it's a mystery even to ourselves, there's a reason for it. So let me just give you a quick example of what I'm talking about. Have, have any of you ever been to a party and felt wildly inappropriate because of how you were dressed? 
You know that super awkward feeling? Man, this happened to me a lot in my 20s when I moved from the Midwest and Michigan down to the South to Atlanta, Georgia for the first time. And for those of you who grew up and have maybe lived in the Midwest your whole life, one thing you'll know is that we're kind of like a jeans and hoodies culture. But the South is way more formal. I don't think I owned a suit or a sport coat until I'd lived in the South for like five years. And what I learned after years in the South was that for Southerners, how I dressed and carried myself around them told them whether I was willing to buy into their, quote, Southern hospitality. The way I looked when I was around them, the way that I approached them, was me expressing to them, even before anything had come out of my mouth, that I valued them, welcomed them, and was gonna treat them well. Now, Midwesterners, on the other hand, despise formality. There's nothing we hate more than putting on airs, right? We don't care how you dress, we wanna know who you really are. We value authenticity over hospitality, at least in the way that Southerners define hospitality. So even behind the way we dress in the Midwest, or the way we dress in the South, there's a reason. There's like a deep, baked-in cultural reason that explains why we're behaving the way we're behaving. And unless you've really kind of pickled in one of those cultures for a while, you might not even be able to name it, but you know that it's important, right? Churches are like that too. Churches have values, churches have cultures. And sometimes it helps just to take a step back and actually name the things that we value instead of just taking them for granted. And one reason we're doing that right now and one reason it's so important is because if you took a look around this room right now, something like 30% of the people in this room weren't here 12 or 14 months ago. A lot of newcomers. And it can take a little bit of time to really work your way into a culture, especially if nobody steps back to say, this is what we value and this is why we value it. So today, I just, I want to use Philippians 4. I don't just want to preach Philippians 4. I want to use it as a biblical text that will start to explain some of what you might call High Point Church's dress code. Why we act the way we act, why we look the way we look, why we sing the way we sing. I want to highlight just a couple of the things that we have made a point of valuing here. The, the things that we've discerned as, as a staff team and especially as Pastor Nick in his years of prayerful service to this church has discerned as important biblical values that we want to order the life of our community around. So I just want to give you two phrases right now. Bear them in mind. Direct attention to God, gracious striving. Direct attention to God, gracious striving. So in one sentence, this is basically my message today. This is what I want us all to see from Philippians 4, is that because High Point Church is God's people, because he is near to us, we give him our direct attention and we strive graciously to live as God's people ought to live. Now, uh, if, you, that, if those phrases, direct attention and gracious striving, didn't make immediate sense to you, don't worry, I'm gonna unpack them as we go. But sometimes it just helps to hear it the way that people on staff around here would say it. So, dive in with me. Uh, the Lord is near. A quick tip for reading Paul's letters. Have you ever noticed how a lot of times the front half of Paul's letters are kind of like praise and heavy doctrine stuff, and then we get into the back half of the letters, you start to get these like one-sentence commands that don't always feel like they even relate to each other? When you're reading Paul and you get into that list of commandments, always look for the statement of fact first. Don't, don't just read them in order. 
and try to explain them to yourself in order. Look for the statement of fact, because this is the way Paul thinks. He's gonna give you a lot of commandments that he thinks are really important for God's church, the ways we need to live, but they're always grounded in a statement of fact. Paul would have done great as a parent of a four-year-old who always wanted to know why. He's usually giving you the why, he just doesn't say here's why. And in this case, the statement of fact that matters most in this little bit of Philippians 4 is this, it's four words, the Lord is near. Now, that is such a colossal biblical theme, I can't even begin to do it justice this morning. I'm gonna give you the quick, broad brush stroke drive-by. If you wanna know where Paul thinks about the nearness of God, how he thinks about the nearness of God, one of the first places I'd send you is the book of Ephesians. In the first couple chapters, Paul works on this, uh, this big argument that leads up to this great statement that in Jesus Christ, Gentiles, who used to be far off from God's people, have now, in the body of Jesus, been brought near together, and that in the body of Jesus, who is God, God's people, the Jews, have been made one with the Gentiles, and God has formed one new people in the body of Christ where there used to be two. Now, that statement points you back to the Old Testament and everything that God did with his people from Genesis through to Malachi. You could, if you wanted, and it might be worthwhile as an exercise, just read through the whole New Testament, or sorry, the whole Old Testament with this theme in mind. Look for where God's nearness, God's presence with his people is emphasized. You can read the whole Old Testament as a story about the presence and alternately sometimes the withdrawal of that presence from Israel. So think about, for example, Moses on Sinai. Moses in Exodus 33, Israel screwed up. He's going up on the mountain to plead with God for the people. And what does Moses say? He says to God, if your presence doesn't go with us, like from here all the way to the promised land, if your presence doesn't go with us, don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? So notice what's at the heart of Moses' prayer here. It's this, his recognition and his deep felt need for the presence of God in the midst of his people. And in fact, without God being near in the midst of God's people, what's the point? What sets them apart from any other nation? At that point, their whole identity is gone. So you can see this in really dramatic form, this truth in really dramatic form in the early chapters of the book of Numbers. I'm willing to bet that that's probably not the book you were reading through right now devotionally, but if you were and you were gonna read the first few chapters of the book of Numbers, after this big sentence, or census, where they go through all the 12 tribes and count them off one by one, God gives Moses the directions for how to order and actually like, structure the camp of Israel in the wilderness. And here's what it is. It's the tabernacle with the presence of God at the center, the Levites, around the tabernacle, and then three different tribes on each of the four like cardinal compass points of the camp. At the very heart of Israel, the way they've even camped, is the presence of God. The nearness of God makes Israel Israel. This is a theme that just rolls all through the Old Testament and that you should have in mind when you're reading Philippians 4. Uh, One passage I'll point you to that's definitely worth going back and just reading over and meditating on this week is Isaiah chapter 12. In Isaiah chapter 12, Isaiah is talking about Israel, but he's also looking ahead to the new covenant of God 
when God's gonna expand the boundaries of his people. And what Isaiah says, and here I'm just gonna quote a few verses. He says, surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then a couple verses later, Isaiah says, give praise to the Lord. Proclaim his name, make known among the nations what he has done and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. So this in a nutshell, Isaiah is telling us is what it means to be God's people. First off, it means to be saved. To be saved, in Israel's case, saved from slavery in Egypt. In our case, saved from the world, from the flesh, from the devil. And that we are made a people by God, set apart from everybody else by God's presence in our midst. And because God is present in our midst, that's why we sing and shout for joy. There's There's a reaction that corresponds with who we are as God's people. So, if the fact that's structuring these verses in Philippians is that the Lord is near, that is also the fact that makes all of us at High Point Church God's people. The Lord is near, God is in our midst. We are the people that God has saved. We're the people who are defined by the power of the gospel. The gospel that teaches us that while the whole world, including every single human being, has been made subject to sin and to corruption and to eventual death, that God in Jesus Christ died as a sacrifice for sin to obliterate, remove, overcome, overpower, even sin and death, that as Jesus rose again as the firstborn of God's new creation, even now, if we confess our sin and believe in Jesus, that we can begin to experience the life of the new creation. That's what makes High Point Church High Point Church. And part of experiencing new creation is experiencing life with the people of God that he has saved. And this is why we gather as a congregation. And this is why the statement, the Lord is near, comes with a list of commandments. Not just another praise song. Remember Israel's history again, because in the light of the biblical narrative, we know that God's presence in the midst of his people comes with obligations. If God is with us, then how then should we live? I mean, remember James chapter four. Submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. The nearness of God is what he gives us in salvation. He he gives us himself, his presence in our midst, but drawing near to him isn't just his, his gift to us, it's our response to him. When Moses is up on Sinai, All Israel could look up at the mountain. All Israel could look up and see like the fire and the smoke. I have to imagine that if somebody were making a movie of this today, there would definitely be a sky beam, right? You can see this from miles and miles and miles around. You know up on the mountain, there is the presence of God. But what does Israel do while they could look up at the mountain while Moses is up there like receiving the the Torah? They sin. They become idolaters. So Moses has to go back up the mountain after horrific sin down in the camp and plead for God to pardon Israel. The point is that when God is with us, we have to live and respond to God's presence as if he's actually there. There's still gonna be temptation to fall aside into idolatry or sin of one kind or another. And that's why Philippians 
emphasizes a few very, very specific reactions to the nearness of God. And the first one that Paul gives us is rejoicing, and the second one that he gives us is prayer. So really quickly, rejoicing. You've already seen from Isaiah 12 that 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 conjunction of God's presence and rejoicing is a normal biblical theme. It's a normal Old Testament theme. Go read Psalm 89. Psalm 89, uh, like 15. Blessed are those who have learned to acclaim you, who walk in the light of your presence. Lord, they rejoice in your name all day long. The presence of God, rejoicing in God. I think one of the great pictures of this in narrative form in the Old Testament is David bringing back the Ark of the Covenant up to Jerusalem. You remember the story where uh, the Ark of God is brought out with the army of Israel into battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines capture the Ark of God, and they take it down into Philistia, and God's judgment falls on the Philistines to the point where they're like, we cannot have the Ark of God here, so they put it on a cart and send it back to Israel. And For years and years and years and years, nobody brings the ark back to a resting place, back to its proper home, until finally David does. After a false start, right, David brings it back. And if you remember the story, then you know that while David is bringing the ark into Jerusalem, he's dancing wildly before the Lord and everybody's singing and dancing, having a massive praise service. And David's wife, Michael, is looking down on him and judging him and despising him in her heart. She's despising the way that he is responding with rejoicing to the presence, the nearness of God in the midst of his people. So why is Michael wrong? Why isn't she right that kings should carry themselves in a slightly more dignified manner? It's because this is the point that she misses. It's only when God is in the midst of Israel that Israel is Israel. It's not David's dignity and royal power that makes Israel Israel. It's the presence of God in their midst, and that's why David is dancing. So for all of us, rejoicing is one of the first right responses to the presence of God in our midst. That's why we sing, that's why, that's why we began this service today, by singing and proclaiming the truth about who God is. Paul also says to pray, okay? Pray, think about Moses going into the tent of meeting. He's speaking with God face to face. God is near Moses, Moses is near God. God hears what Moses says. Moses hears what God says. Prayer for the Christian is not screaming at a deity who is far away trying to attract him to you. Prayer for the Christian is already addressing the God who has come near, who is in our midst. On this side of the resurrection, prayer is one of the nearest experiences that you and I will ever have to reclaiming the fellowship that Adam and Eve had with God in the Garden of Eden. So both prayer and rejoicing, I could, each one of those could be a sermon unto themselves, right? But in both prayer and rejoicing, we have two examples of really sort of the same spiritual impulse that we at High Point Church just kind of summarize with these words. We call it direct attention to God. If God is in our midst, then there's a variety of ways that we want to make it our business to give direct attention to God so that we don't screw up on this side of the resurrection of the dead in the way that Israel screwed up in the wilderness when they could look up and see the fire and the smoke on the mountain but still fell aside into error and deception. This is one reason why we attend Sunday morning worship every week. 
and why we encourage you to do even more than that. This is why we hold like monthly worship nights where we get together for no other purpose than to attend directly to the God who's in our midst. This is why there's a prayer meeting every single Wednesday night. This is why if you're a member of High Point small groups, prayer takes up a very significant portion of your time together on a weekly or bi-weekly basis. Uh, most Sunday mornings when, when, the, when the class is in session, we have a manuscript Bible study class where we get together during one of the services and we just focus on what God is saying to us in the Word. We're trying to attend directly to Him. I could go on and on and on because there's more that that you as a congregation probably don't even see and know about. If you were to attend one of the meetings of our elder board, the folks who are entrusted with weighing some of the heaviest and weightiest decisions about this congregation's life and its future, you would see that they begin every single meeting with a long devotional period where they're trying to set their, their eyes on Jesus. Direct attention to God is essential. You could probably call that biblical value by another name, but that's the one we use here. So if you ever hear anybody say, direct attention to God, what they mean is, the Lord is near, and so I had better fix my eyes on the Lord who is near. Um, If you think better in story form instead of propositional form, think about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming his way, Luke chapter 19. He knows that Jesus is coming, and he's really, really curious. But he also knows that uh, he's a shorter guy and he's not gonna be able to see over the crowd. So what does he do? He runs ahead, he finds a sycamore tree and he climbs it. Think of giving direct attention to God. For all of us as the people of God, giving direct attention to God, our job is to look for the sycamore tree and climb it so that when he comes, we are gonna have that straight line of sight on him. We're gonna give him our full, our undivided attention. Climb the trees that you have available whether it's attending prayer meetings or small groups, whether you're just on your own and the best that you can do on your own is listen to a podcast, have a spiritual conversation with a friend over coffee, draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Give him your attention and you'll find that you have his. But you're gonna find that when you do start to actually give God both individually and as a people, your full and undivided attention, you're gonna experience something. You're gonna encounter something. We could call it a gift of grace. And this is another thing that Moses learned on Sinai. When Moses is up on Sinai in the presence of God, and then he comes back down the mountain from the presence of God, he's Moses, but he's like Moses plus, right? He comes down, he doesn't even know that he's radiating, shining with the glory of God that he encountered on the mountain. He's got a new power coming down the mountain that he didn't have when he went up. Now, this is why at High Point Church, we we talk about this biblical reality, the fact that when we encounter God's presence, God empowers us with his own nature so that we can go and do the work that he's given us to do. The two-word phrase that we use for that is just, quote, gracious striving. I'm gonna unpack that over the next few minutes here. Um, But here's a quick story that I I imagine will resonate with a lot of you. I have some friends in this church who have uh, a small child who's learning to walk. And it's a ton of fun to watch little kids learn to walk. But this kid is at that stage where they can't really like stand up and support themselves vertically on their own yet. So what they need is a parent to like grab two hands and pull them up and then they can start kind of just shuffling one foot in front of the other. Anybody ever watch that happen? That's what gracious striving is in a nutshell. 
God takes hold of our spiritual arms, lifts us up so that we can keep ourselves upright, but then it's our job to just put one foot in front of the other while he's holding us up. So who's doing the walking, the kid or, or the parent? Who's doing the gracious striving, us or God? I mean, the answer is yes. It's a cooperative endeavor where, we, where on the one hand, without God, we couldn't. But on the other hand, God doesn't do the whole thing for us. He leaves us to keep putting one foot in front of another. Second Peter chapter one gives us maybe the clearest biblical description of this reality, the nearness and the power and the grace of God that enables us to strive for him. Second Peter chapter one, beginning in verse three, Peter says, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world that, uh, caused by evil desires. That phrase, participate in the divine nature, means that God has given us his own nature so that we can start to do the things that otherwise only God can do. And this is the sort of biblical context that we need to have in mind when we read Philippians 4 and Paul starts to talk about gentleness being evident to all and the peace of God, that, that, that peace transcending all understanding, guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Because here's the thing about gentleness and here's the thing about peace. These are not natural human qualities. These are not, these are not the results of a perfectly ordered philosophical life. These are not the human characteristics that emerge when we've like Marie Kondo to our existence to the point that suddenly we just start to live and behave in a more superior way compared to our, who we were in the past. Jesus is the gentle one. When you hear the word gentleness, you should see the face of Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, come to me all you who are weary. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And it's not just Jesus. Paul also says that gentleness was a manifestation of his life in Christ. 1 Thessalonians chapter two. Now here I'm reading from the ESV because it gets the translation a little better than the NIV. But what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians is that though uh, he could have made demands of the Thessalonians as an apostle of Christ, he became gentle in Thessalonica, like a nursing mother. So how did Paul do it? And how can any of us do it? Becoming gentle like Jesus. Remember that the Paul who said, I became gentle among you, is also the Paul who said in Galatians chapter two that he has been crucified with Christ, that Christ is now the power living in him. He literally says, Paul says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The same thing that's true of gentleness is this is true of all of the other qualities of Jesus. His divine power gives us everything we need to live a godly life. And yet, on the other hand, gentleness is still something that we do. When Paul's in Thessalonica, he is actually actively behaving gently, humbly. Okay, what about peace? Just think about the language that Paul uses here in Philippians 4, because it's, it's just really precise. The peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Whose peace is it? It's God's peace guarding your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. He is not telling you to master yourself so that you discover inner peace. 
He's telling you that God's peace will be the thing that guards your heart and mind. It is the gift of God, the gracious gift of God. His own nature as peaceable comes to us and gives peace to our minds. Now, those of you who really know your Bibles at this point, there will be a little bell in the back of your mind ringing that says Galatians 5, Galatians 5, Galatians 5, because both gentleness and peace are characteristics that Paul lists in the so-called fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So this is the tension. This is the tension for the Christian. On the one hand, we rely on, we must seek God. We must ask for his grace. Like Jesus says in Luke, when, when Jesus is teaching you how to pray in the Gospel of Luke and he's telling you what to ask for, he says, ask for the Holy Spirit. He says, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will, you have, will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So ask for the Holy Spirit. What you're asking for is the nature and the power of God to come into you and make manifest the fruit of God's own life in you and through you. Peace, gentleness, love, and so on. But then, once we've asked for and received the Holy Spirit, once the nature of God is manifest in our lives, we actually have to do something. We have to strive to put those qualities and characteristics into action. Gracious striving. Think again about that image of the little kid learning to walk. Those, those divine arms grabbing my arms and lifting me up. That's like the Holy Spirit giving me the power that I need to walk in the good works that God has prepared for me to do. But then once he's lifted me up, I have to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and actually try to exemplify a life of love, to actually exemplify a life of gentleness, a life of peace. At High Point, um, we like to remind ourselves that a life of gracious striving is often most manifest in the places that we would most like to avoid. And here I have in mind specifically the nitty-gritty details of life. The day-to-day -day grind and doing the stuff that you least want to do that you find most tedious, those are all opportunities for you to practice the fruit of the Spirit in your life, to act in accordance with the gift of the Holy Spirit that God has given to you. Um, doing the dishes is gracious striving. If, you, if it's undertaken as an opportunity to love and serve the people around you that you share a house with, doing the dishes isn't just a way to like maintain hygiene. It's a way to say to the people around you that I value your time, that I value you, that I wanna love and serve you. I, I wanna be the sort of person who's like Jesus, who took on the nature of a servant, is the way that Paul puts it earlier in Philippians and humbled himself. Doing the dishes, changing diapers. Nobody ever enjoyed changing a diaper. You don't do it because you enjoy it. You do it because you're trying to express true love for people around you. And when you're doing it as a Christian, you're not just doing it because you think it's important, because you can talk yourself through the reasons why it's important. You're doing it intentionally as an expression of divine love that says, this is unpleasant for me, 
but it's necessary for you. So I want to be like my master and do even what's unpleasant for me because it's necessary for you. Because without it, you will never, like this young child, this however many, you know, six pounds, seven ounce baby wiggling there on the floor, without it, you will never grow up into the fullness of the person that God created you to be. You do it because you say to your spouse, I will do this for you. I will take this really unpleasant experience on myself because the fullest expression of my love is not to run away from the struggle and to expect you to do it for me. The fullest expression of not just like natural desire that I can express for you, but the fullest expression of the love of God that is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in me says that I will imitate Jesus and do the unpleasant thing so that you don't have to. And when you do all of that, depending on the power of the Holy Spirit in you, well, this is what I think of. I mean, there's this great prayer that I like to pray. Um, a lot of you know that I, I like to pray sometimes with written prayers. I pray a lot extemporaneously, but sometimes I like to pray with written prayers. And there's this one really powerful line from a written prayer that just kind of sticks with me, where uh, towards the end of the prayer, whoever wrote this prayer penned these words, said, and pray that we, walking in the way of the cross, may find it to be the way of life and peace that as we take the cross on us, which is a way of suffering, when you willingly embrace the suffering to love the people around you, you will also find that it's a way of life and peace that you wouldn't have found if you hadn't embraced the suffering. And that's gracious striving. So at High Point, this is what we do. We remind each other of our need for God and for the grace of God, of our absolute dependence on him. We, we know in our bones that apart from God, we can do nothing. And so we call out for him. But we also remember that Jesus says, if we call out for the Holy Spirit, the Father will give the Holy Spirit. And once the Father has given the Holy Spirit, then it's up to us to actually act like we have the Holy Spirit. And that's the striving part. Could I have you all stand with me, please? Over time, and I do mean years of time, I learned that how I dressed mattered to the Southerners in Atlanta in a way that it just did not matter in my hometown in West Michigan. I went, so I went from jeans and a hoodie to jeans and a sport coat. And then I went from jeans and a sport coat to chinos and a sport coat. And by the time I left Atlanta, I actually owned a couple suits. Um, I, I couldn't quite get all the Midwest out of me, but I did try. But the most important thing that I learned was not to every now and again look at the pages of GQ to figure out how I was supposed to carry myself in 2018 or whatever. What I learned, what I learned was that even something that mattered as little to me as the way I dressed meant a lot more to the people that I encountered in and around Atlanta than I would have guessed. What it mattered to them that I was willing to welcome them and give them my best or what they perceived to be my best because that was my way of saying I value you. Now, that is one of those deeply ingrained cultural values that I didn't know when I first encountered it. And I'm willing to bet that for those of you who are new to a church like High Point, there are some deeply ingrained cultural values here that maybe you feel but you haven't heard named yet. And it's very likely that giving direct attention to God and graciously striving are two of those really, really important cultural values. Now, today, I've just mostly tried to explain them. I haven't tried to inspire you so much to pursue them, but just to name them, to give you an opportunity to think about them 
and then to start considering how you might put them into practice. Um, but the thing I don't want to just blow past is this. Recognize that these are not just values that we plucked out of thin air. Look how easy it is to get there from even a text like Philippians 4, which never uses the terms gracious striving or direct attention to God. Those are great summary terms that will help you understand the way that we have read the Bible here in our attempt to know God better. And because they're biblical values, they're values that I would recommend to just about anybody. So, this is the key. Remember this, God has saved us. And that because God is in our midst, that's why we renew our attention, personally pursuing every opportunity to look God in the face, finding our sycamore tree to climb it, to see Jesus as he passes. And that's why we do our best to lean on God's grace every single day, knowing that apart from him we can do nothing, but that he has promised us to give us everything we need to walk in the good works that he's given us to perform. And because these are church values, not just individual values, we get to all do it together. In Christ, all of us who are once far off have now been brought near. And being brought near means being brought near not just to each other, but also to the God who's in our midst, the God who makes us a people, the God who gives us a reason for being a people. Amen.